Our next speaker is, I believe, Mike O'Fallon. Yep, Mike O'Fallon. Mike is the founder of Sovereign Nations, which is a media company. Um, they produce content and uh, teaching. Uh, Mike is also a friend of mine. I I love hearing him speak. I have this you know personal thing of like whenever he's talking, I want to listen. So if it's in Florida and I hear he's doing an event, I'll I'll try and get down there. Um, when I was thinking of doing an event like this or a conference, Mike was the the first one that I thought, well, we got to have him. So I'm so thankful to have Mike O'Fallon come and speak for us. Um, I don't really know what else to say, but he's uh, he's a man of many talents and quite a history in defending the faith and teaching truth. And he's willing to do it in all types of settings. It doesn't have to be in a church. It can be in a boardroom. It can be uh, on, a, on a cruise ship. It can be in a, a tall building in front of important people. So, Mike, come on up and speak for us. Well, it's great to be here, and I want to thank Andy for, for having all of us and the kindness that he's displayed towards us and the opportunity to share with the saints here in New York. And one thing I want to go back on what Andy had just said just a moment ago. He had talked about this whole idea in terms of evangelism. And when you're bringing or doing a church plant in another urban area or a suburban area, whatever the case may be, where the new thing is contextualization of your evangel and omitting core issues or, or portions of your doctrinal statements and what you're declaring within maybe your catechism within the city due to the cultural milieu of the region of your area. May I say that that's not a new thing? And that's one of the reasons why I'm here. You see, I understood back about 25 or 30 years ago, going actually back a little bit further than that. So my entire family was involved in the Roman Catholic Church. My mother was the director of music for the Roman Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. My uncle was a diocesan priest. Stepfather was a former Jesuit seminarian and brother. My father was in charge of the Roman Catholic Charismatics in Tampa Bay. And I had done just about everything to be a good Catholic. But here's the thing that I saw, especially on the time that I had gone to the University of Florida. Catholicism, for close to 1,500 years, became whatever it needed to become in whatever area to make sure that it could get its roots in. That's why when you go to South America or to Mexico, you see a very different Catholicism than you would see in Italy. You would see a very different Catholicism in Italy than you would see in Germany. You would see a very different Catholicism in the Philippines than you would in either one of those two places. As a matter of fact, as the old Didache Catholic Church of St. Patrick began to lose its power, and as Rome came in and instituted itself, how it became what Rome wanted it to be, based upon really the ideas and the cultural milieu of the area, what people believed, what sort of things can we incorporate. 
There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same thing. It's using the same model. And we'll get a little bit into that tomorrow. Because this has a root. And the root is not necessarily one that is born out of an exegetical understanding of Scripture. Out of a historical understanding of Scripture. But let's go to our first text of this evening. If you can, please turn to Daniel chapter 3. And starting at verse number 1. Daniel chapter 3 and verse number 1. I figured since we're in New York, I'd probably use the ESV. So, starting at verse number 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits. Now, by the way, when I'm reading this, folks, yes, I want you to look back to the time that this was written, but keep in mind what's going around you today. I continue. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Lord Jesus, we do pray that as we read your perfect and infallible word, that we learn from history We do not dismiss things purely as just stories or pericopes, but we understand that we are to learn 
and learn in a way that we should obey and know how we are to act when the same things that were done thousands of years ago are being done to us today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Give me wisdom, and may you speak through this message and through each of the speakers for this conference. We ask this in your name. Amen. So now, today, when you get a push notification to your phone, when you're told on the news, when you're told through radio or through whatever you listen to things through, that you must bow down and obey, that you must do something that really makes no sense. But if you don't, you'll be fined, you'll lose your job, your church will be shut down, even, let's face it, your mosque or your temple will be shut down if you don't obey what the state says to do. And yet we continue to obey. And it should be noted that since the beginning of time, since the creation of earth and its inhabitants, that as soon as a tyrant takes over the control of a tribe, takes control over a region, takes control over another civilization, they demand a few things. They demand your property, and I don't just mean your home. They demand your obedience. And sooner or later, they'll demand your worship. They will insist that what possessions that you have, what possessions that your family has, what possessions that the Lord has given you as you navigate the world and care for your family, that those possessions are in fact theirs. But I'll tell you, a very wise man said this to me many years ago. And let me give you a little context about this. Back between 2008 and 2009, if you remember, we had a massive financial shock to our system. And if you were involved in financial services, mortgages, you name it, real estate, many people lost everything. Back then, I had a client, and I served for his meetings, his events, consultation. He had a massive mortgage and loan company that had offices all throughout the United States. We would do their giant year-end parties. We would take over half of a ship, and they'd have a great party with a 1,000 people. It's a man of faith, too. And I was out for a little while. We just finished a cruise with WorldNet Daily. I'll never forget it. It was with Alan Keyes and some others. And I knew that things were hard for Mark. But I, the first person I wanted, to do, or I wanted to see was when I got back to Tampa Bay to see Mark Graham. So I drove over to the parking lot where his offices are. Beautiful building. Pulled up into the parking lot, was getting out, putting on my blazer. And all of a sudden, I see this 2002 Nissan Xterra, kind of beat up, you know, pull up over there. I sort of half noticed it. Mark Graham gets out of the car. Now, understand, Mark usually drove an S-Class Mercedes. I'm like, oh, that's odd. 
So I said, hey, Mark, is that your son's car? And he goes, no, that's my car now. I said, Mark, what happened? He goes, well, I'm getting rid of my office today. Sold two of my other houses. I'm just going to keep one. Got rid of the luxury box at Raymond James Stadium. Got rid of the luxury box at the Ice Palace. Midge got rid of her car. We're going down to one car. I said, Mark, I'm so sorry. Man, I, I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't know it was that hard. Mark said to me, Mike, it's okay. That's all just stuff. That doesn't make me who I am. I know who I am. I know what the Lord has in store for me. If the Lord wants me to have those things again, he'll give me those things. It's just stuff. And now I'm lighter because of it. And you need to think about that as some of you here in this church need to make some hard decisions. Are you doing things that you know that the Lord would not have you do because you're trying to keep your stuff? Are you living in a place maybe that the Lord wouldn't have you live because you're trying to keep your stuff and what you've worked for? And maybe, and understand, you're talking to some guy who's lost a lot over the last few years. Maybe not wait, but, um, but you have to ask yourself of whether you've built an idol yourself to things that you're not willing to give up to obey the Lord your God. So if it was just stuff that the tyrants are after, if it was just things that are temporal that they were after, you know, that would be one thing, but it isn't. Because they also require your obedience. What do you think the last year and a half has been? It's been obedience training. Before I got on the plane from Palm Beach, I was with somebody last night in Palm Beach who has not been very obedient to what others would want him to do. (laughs) But they want your obedience. So when I I was getting on the plane, I got a, a, a push notification that your governor had just made a a new edict, I guess, that all of you have to wear your masks indoors just today or a thousand dollar fine. Well, why is that? What is the science behind that? Was it because of Omicron? I mean, I've, I've had COVID folks. So what is the reason behind all of this? It doesn't matter. You just need to obey because When the horn blows, when the bagpipe roars, when the lyre is struck, you must bow down. And not just your obedience to a certain amount of new rules and regulations of your tyrants, but also total obedience, mind, body, and soul, which brings us to the ultimate demand of worship. Complete and total worship. The kind of worship that most evangelicals are not familiar with. Let's face it. The kind of worship that demands that every bit of obedience that you have mustered must be directed towards their glory, to their power, to their vision of the future, which they're not even letting you know what that is yet. I'll touch on that a little bit tonight. 
And all of your possessions, all of your obedience collectively must be pointed, pointed towards and focused upon their eschatological vision, upon their utopia, immunitizing the eschaton, but not through an individual trust and obedience to God, not through the autonomous actions of individuals who love the Lord thy God with all their heart, mind, and soul. No, 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 no. This is the creating of God in their own image. The creation of God in the image of man. In essence, becoming the God makers. Not the lowering of man through the bondage of the will in relation to God and his sovereignty and his omnipotence. But the refusal of God. You see, the church itself, in the radical revolutionary's eyes, needs its own cultural revolution. And those of you that are familiar with the Chinese Cultural Revolution, basically what happened is Mao just did what Gramsci thought. Gramsci didn't have a way to really apply it. And basically what Gramsci was doing was just what the Fabians had thought. But he had systematized it. And what Gramsci had thought, then the German critical theorists tried to make happen, which eventually brought us to where we are now. And in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, what Mao understood was this. After he made a mess, a complete mess of the Great Leap Forward, he had people turn against him. Then you had the Hundred Flowers campaign, where all of a sudden the Chinese Communist Party said, you know what, folks, those of you that oppose the government, we want you to speak up. Let us know what you really don't like about us. And as well, we're going to allow you to prosper. And if you want to start some businesses and practice capitalism, those of you that want to do that, go ahead and do it. Those that have that in your hearts, we're going to give you more political freedom. We're going to give you greater freedom of speech. Go at it. That lasted a couple of years. Then the Cultural Revolution started and Mao came strong, roaring back. And guess what he knew then? Oh, it's you that oppose me. Oh, it's you that oppose the revolution. Oh, it's you that want the filthy bourgeoisie capitalism. Well, I know who I have to eliminate now. Eliminate the four olds. The old ways of dress. The old families and traditions. And especially the old religions. Because we need to have a new religion. The religion of the state. Well, in the new cultural revolution within the church... The one that practice, practices syncretism through every area that it goes to to try to define how their doctrine should be and how each one of those areas will embrace their doctrine. Well, that new way of doing a cultural revolution within the, the church, well, they want to do away with the old God. Out with the God who molded and created the holy scriptures that serve our authority and guide and in with the new artificial God the artificial God of their own making, the God made of human hands and of human sin, the created man-fashioned God that will seek to steal all of the attributes that only the creator and sustainer of the universe himself intrinsically possesses, a God who is all-knowing, an artificial God-man who is all-knowing. The new artificial God of man must be omniscient. 
The new God of man must be all-knowing of all things at all times. You see, the new God of man must know your heart rate at all times, your temperature at all times, your general health condition at all times. The new God, the new artificial God of man must know where you are, what you are reading at all times, must know what you are watching at all times, must know what websites you're on at all times. It must know what you are saying at all times. The new artificial God of man must know what you are thinking at all times. As a matter of fact, the new artificial God of man will be able to replace your bad thoughts, the thoughts that you should not be thinking with the new thoughts approved by the artificial God created by human hands. The new God must know where you are at all times because the new God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. The new God must know where you are constantly at all times in the new city of the new God. It is the new central city, the gentrificated city, the center city that eliminates all suburban living because the new city of the new God is not a city. It is a panopticon. And what is a panopticon? Well, a panopticon is an institutional building where people are kept under inspection, whether it is a hospital, a school, public housing for poor people, maybe a camp in Australia, a factory, or a mental health institution. But the most famous application of a panopticon is that of a prison. The essence of the panopticon is that of central inspection. A disciplinary concept brought to life in the form of a central observation tower placed within a circle of prison cells. Observation tower in the middle surrounded by the prison cells. From the tower, a guard can see every cell and inmate, but the inmates cannot see into the tower. Prisoners will never know whether or not they are actually being watched at one time or another. But they will always be watched. You see, the new city of the new artificial God is a prison. In fact, the new world of this genderless Marxist God is a prison, an endlessly surveilled city of the technology and physical enforcement. But, but don't worry. The new God of man's making is an omnibenevolent God. He's all good. The new artificial God is good. And the new all-knowing, all-powerful God is a God that knows what is best for mankind collectively. Because we're all in this together. The new God knows first what is collectively good for the whole, and then will designate what you must do to serve the greater purpose of the collective. Your will, your desires, your dreams must be the same dream as the artificial God, or else there's going to be trouble. And for the new artificial God's plan to work, well, we all have to be on the same plan as well. 
So all of the guiding principles and distinctions of every culture around the world, of all the paths through what is known as exegetical formulation and doctrinal formulation, must be done away with. All of the paths of falsification and scientific knowledge must be done away with. For the new artificial God will demand your obedience to the new artificial truth of the new artificial God. Now, you, you may be thinking to yourself, what evil mind came up with all of this? Well, I mean, basically, as with all things artificial and destructively evil from the mind of man. There's an article many years ago, and let me first say this too. How I got into all of this mess years and years ago, I left the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the reasons that I left the Roman Catholic Church was this, is because there was such a low view of Scripture. And the fact is, they weren't allowing to make their ever-changing, ever-evolving doctrines comply to what the Word of God said. There was always a back door. There was always a reason. And what was really heavily applied, especially in a Jesuit household that I grew up in, was historical critical theory. A complete disrespect for the Scriptures. So, when I heard the Word of God faithfully preached in a Bible study in Galatians, way back in 1995. And when I came and came and came through that entire study over months of Galatians, and the pastor was so clear in what he was teaching. And I said, well, the authority actually comes back to the word of God, not me. So you need to check whatever I'm saying against the word. That made a huge impression upon me. The scary thing is, and this is the reason why I got into all of this, why I started doing events and cruises and everything else, is because then he said, yeah, I got some concerns, though, about what's happening at Dallas Theological Seminary. So they got a new professor there. His name's Daryl Bach. He's a Lucan scholar, but he comes from Tübingen in Germany. And there's some issues with some of the things that he's saying about it. Systems box, systems verba, really confusing things quite a bit. He's also kind of invented some new doctrines too, eschatologically. See, one of the things that kind of also pushed me out of the Catholic Church was, was a priest by the name of Malachi Martin. He was very close to the papacy. It was at the Vatican in Rome. And he had written a book, and I see some people nodding their heads. He had written a book called The Keys of This Blood. And when I was really struggling with things in Catholicism, there was a priest in a church who's, by the way, he's no longer in the priesthood, said, I understand what you're saying. You need to read this. He pointed back to a couple things and some influences. He said, unfortunately, there was a time when the Rhine flowed through the Tiber. And what he meant was the effects of historical criticism German historical criticism in the scriptures that somehow flowed into Rome. And he said, the biggest influences, unfortunately, were Hegel and Marx and those concepts. And he pointed towards the dialectic. I first read that back in 1990-91. And you can ask James White, some of you are familiar with him. The first conference that we had was battling this issue. And that was just 
two years after I received Christ in a Baptist church. And what I thought is, I really have to make sure we save the scriptures. Because we can even say that the word is inerrant, it's authoritative. But if we look back to the word and we go, well, let's apply a little bit of the graph. Well, how's in theory? Let's take a look at things and we can say, well, the Gospels actually come from multivariate sources. We don't really know if Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, John wrote John. Uh, The Pauline epistles, probably none of those are original. And we start to apply critical theory to the scripture. This is what you get. Now, I'm sorry if some of the things that I'm saying seem out of character to what you're used to seeing in many evangelical churches, but I'm sorry. I'm done with winsome winsome whispers. I've been leading tours through Germany, through London, through the Czech Republic, through Geneva. And maybe some of you think that the reformers spoke in this tone. (laughs) Let's be clear. Up until about 120 years ago, you didn't have a microphone. So if you went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, which is massive, ten times this size, somehow Spurgeon was able to reach the back row and still pin those to their pews as they were pierced with the word of God. So we say, well... Jonathan Edwards, he just read, you know, sinners in the hand of the red, you know, friendly God, sinners in the hand of an angry God. People were falling down. Do you think he read it like this? <laughs> now, I'm serious. And unfortunately, we've created an entire generation of pastors that speak with the strength of a homosexual Roman Catholic priest. And I don't say that just a joke. I mean it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in the middle of warfare right now. If you didn't know it, maybe some of you are starting to realize that. Maybe some of you are starting to realize that your family is under attack. Your future is under attack. Your faith is under attack. And worst of all, the attack in your faith is coming from the inside. It's an article that was written way back in 1973 in Christianity Today that addressed some of the origins of the ideological framework that is at the heart of the critical theory, the historical criticism that was part of the dialectical process. Says this, it is the so called Tubigen school inspired by the philosophy of Hegel, which is responsible for it, according to this dogma with its scheme of thesis, antithesis, synthesis. I don't want you to forget this. Write this down. Start with the first word. Okay, we'll start over here because it's the opposite, right? Thesis, arrow, antithesis, arrow, synthesis. There existed at the beginning of Christianity the community of Jerusalem, completely dominated by Jewish theology, and especially by Jewish hopes. Later, through contact with the Hellenistic world, a very different kind of Christianity was supposed to have arisen, arisen, Gentile Christianity. Early Catholicism would then represent the synthesis. 
GWF Hegel, of course, remember that Hegel was born in 1770, died in 1831. He was the largest influence on someone later that would get rid of the metaphysical aspects of this idea and then would formulate what was known as Marxism. But Hegel was the German idealist philosopher, developed his, his system of absolute idealism out of the critical idealism of Kant, Fichte, and Schelling, working from the thesis that the real is rational and the rational is real. Hegel developed a logic for all human knowledge, not in terms of being, but in terms of becoming. In other words, there is no being, there is not truth that is static, that is truth for all times, but is always in the process of becoming. Develop, development followed through a dialectical process of a thesis, followed by an antithesis, in which the conflicting factors issued a, in a higher synthesis. It's called the third way. It's called compromise, folks. But purpose compromise, because it's the synthesis that they're actually after. He propounded an evolutionary view of the development of the universe that included not only the realm of natural science, but also law, history, and religion, with evolving ever more becoming subjective truth contained within the whole. The influence of Hegel's thought has been vast in the materialistic direction. His doctrines have been developed by Ludwig Frauerbach, Karl Marx, and contained within the whole communist movement. Of particular interest is Hegel's influence on the modern study of biblical and ecclesiastical history and systematic theology. It was at Tübingen that the modern study of biblical and church history began. The so-called Tübingen School was founded by F.C. Bauer. Those of you that are had some biblical training, probably are very familiar with Bauer, Bultmann, probably, again, Wellhausen, a theology professor who developed his characteristic doctrines under Hegel's concept of history. In 1835, he applied Hegel's principles to the New Testament. Primitive Christianity was represented as a struggle between divergent views. The Catholic Church as the synthesis. In 1845, Bauer roused a storm of controversy by applying his dialectic to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, whom he represented as being violently opposed to the apostles to the Jews. The principal endeavor of the Tubigen school, therefore, in the attempt to apply Hegel's dialectic to the primitive church, was to divide the church into the Jewish Christians, or preteranists, Peter, and the Gentile Christians of Paulinus antithesis, a cleavage that was healed in the Antonician Catholicism of the church, synthesis. And through Tübingen, the entire practice of historical criticism was born. It was a way to gradualistically evolve the meanings of things, apply Alphaben, or critical canceling approach to whatever was to gradually move incrementally to where you want to be. It was a way to gradualistically evolve the meaning of things and the interpretation of Scripture, to make incremental change bit by bit, little step by little step, until the meaning is sucked out of truth, until truth itself evolves into a subjective morass that would, uh, would be unrecognizable to just one previous generation. 
Now, how does this apply? How many of you here have had serious biblical training? Pastors, anybody else here? I was just referring before to Daryl Bach at Dallas Theological Seminary. By the way, Dallas Theological Seminary right now is fully woke. 20 years ago, if you said that, people would have laughed at you. Think about Daryl Bach. Think about what I just said about Hegelianism, the dialectic. Where do you think progressive dispensationalism came from? That's Daryl Bach. It's the Hegelian dialectic applied to eschatology. Envisioning a technocratic world guided by science, collective communities, and the elimination of sovereign nations, H.G. Wells first published his plan for world revolution as groundbreaking work, The Open Conspiracy, Blueprints for a World Revolution in 1928. Now, first of all, who is H.G. Wells? Many of you think of him as the science fiction writer. H.G. Wells was a Fabian, part of the Fabian Society. Who is the Fabian Society? They're a group of people that believed in the ideas of Hegel, Rousseauian Marxism, and thought of it as a gradualistic process that they needed to follow the dialectic to eventually bring that into society, that that was much better than a bloody revolution as envisioned by Marx and Engels. They had a tremendous influence on things, and they were populated by people that were some of the greatest thinkers of the era. But all these men thought through really what we should eventually skip through evolution to become, to become the great utopian society. This is what H.G. Wells said in 1928, quote, now the most comprehensive conception of this new world is one as of one politically, socially, and economically united. To this end, a small but increasing body of people in the world set their faces and seek to direct their lives. Wells goes on to say in his work, Open Conspiracy, quote, the character of the open conspiracy, the movement towards a world collective, will now be plainly displayed. It will have become a great world movement as widespread and evident as socialism or communism. It will largely have taken the place of these movements. It will be more. It will be a world religion. End quote. In his work, The Salvaging of Civilization, H.G. Wells states, quote, The world state must begin. It can only begin as a propaganda cult or as a group of propagandist cults to which men and women must give themselves and their energies regardless of the consequences to themselves. The activities of a cult which sets itself to bring about the world state would at first be propagandist. They would be intellectual and educational and only as a sufficient mass of opinion and will had accumulated would they become to a predominant extent politically constructive. Such a cult must direct itself particularly to the teaching of the young. End quote. Around the same time as H.G. Wells and the Fabians in the United Kingdom were spinning their hopes for eugenics enforced socialist technocratic oligarchical world order, a Baptist organization 
named the Brotherhood of the Kingdom. It's about eight to ten years before Wells wrote those things. Was flourishing in the United States. You had the Baptists basically creating the nightmarish scenarios that gave birth to the concepts that H.G. Wells eventually synthesized, synthesized into his concept for a world religion. Many of these concepts had their genesis in the Brotherhood of the Kingdom with men like Walter Rauschenbusch and Samuel Zane Batten. As a matter of fact, but I trace a lot of this too, because of course the influence of Hegel was great. It was great upon many men, W.B.D. Du Bois, great upon him. The influence upon Walter Rauschenbusch was incredible, in which he went to Germany to be influenced, and then, after spending time at Tübingen, came back through London and spent about three months with George Bernard Shaw, Sidney Webb, the Fabians, before he headed back to America. But these men were progressives. These were the men that codified the concepts of the social gospel, the concepts that a deconstructed and then reconstructed faith would be what organize and guide societies. In fact, it was Samuel Zane Batten that first coined a famous term, Samuel Zane Batten, the Baptist minister, who, by the way, I'm sorry, are there people that are uh, post-mill here? I mean, I love you, okay? Everybody was post-mill, basically, during that time. And here's the reason why. And it's more sociological than anything else. Is that the reason that post-millennialism was so popular during that time is because you had a great amount of time where there was no war, no serious war. You had the Franco-Prussian War. That was the same time, around the same time, a little bit later than the Civil War that we experienced, the horror of the Civil War. But you had a time in Europe, and as well in America, they called the Belle Epoque, the beautiful age, the age in which we were dreaming great things. Things were only getting better. Things were only getting better in the second industrial revolution. You had gasoline now. You had electricity. You had antibiotics. Things were getting better. Capitalism had done great things. But with that capitalism, meant a destruction of really what, of, what was a metaphysical lower class. So with Samuel Zane Baxter, Pastor Samuel Zane Batten, the Baptist, that first coined a famous term that would be used frequently by Christians and then the non-Christian globalists, like George Bush. The title of Zane Batten's 1919 book, please check me, don't, I know some people are going to come out of here tonight going, that was nuts. Take notes, and there's a thing called Google. And if you don't like using that, go duck, duck, go. That's fine. I think that's God-ordained. It's not the panopticon. <laughs> Google is the, <laughs> the digital panopticon. But check on what I'm saying. Samuel St. Batten's 1919 book was called this. The first time this phrase was used. Baptist minister. The New World Order. Samuel Zane Batten began a career as a Baptist minister in the Mid-Atlantic and the Midwest. He became involved in the social reform movements in the late 19th century and helped found the Brotherhood of the Kingdom, a core organization of social justice movement, 
at the turn of the century. He was a prolific author, arguing that Christians had a religious duty to make use of the state to improve the condition of mankind. That's Hegelian. As the country was, ex- was exiting World War I, massive destruction everywhere. The whole idea of the monarchical state beginning to fall apart. And actually, it was the Marxists and the communists that thought World War I is going to be the trigger that brings in communism for the world. It didn't exactly happen. It only happened in one place. And that's more the fault of Germany than anybody else. They're the ones that actually sent Lenin to Russia. So, as the country was exiting World War I, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze, Batten was optimistic that nationalization of industries and active governmental mobilization of economic resources for the war effort marked the end of American individualism rather than a return to normalcy. So basically what St. Batten said was this, oh, we will not be returning to normal. We're going to have a new normal. So he sounded like Ed Stetzer. As U.S. President Warren G. Harding would promise, Batten hoped the country would transition into a new world order, characterized by the socialization of the nation and the democratization of industry. Zane Batten had not promised for a return to normalcy after the World War. Batten had hoped for a great reset of the world. More of a coming together of a new social order with international implications. So Samuel Zane Batten wrote the following in 1919, just at the conclusion of World War I and about the same time as the founding of the International Social Order Organization forming called the League of Nations, of which H.G. Wells was very much behind. Remember that H.G. Wells actually wrote the charter for the beginning of the United Nations. Don't forget that. Now, please, as I read this, listen carefully, take notes, go back and check it yourself. Let me know if any of what I'm about ready to read sounds vaguely familiar to what you're hearing now. How many of you have read Klaus Schwab's The Fourth Industrial Revolution? Everybody should be reading Klaus Schwab's The Fourth Industrial Revolution, folks. So no one can tell you that that's conspiracy theory anymore. How many of you have read Klaus Schwab's COVID-19 and The Great Reset that he published in May of 2020? That's the thing that got James Lindsay to flip on this issue. He read what Klaus Schwab said. He didn't follow conspiracy theories. I said, James, read this. He read it with, oh. And I said, I told you so. Okay. And this is what Samuel Zane Batten wrote. Quote, the nation today faces a great new task. Remember, this is just after World War I. Millions of men have been slaughtered. Entire cities have been flattened. Germany has been embarrassed. In the judgment which has befallen the world, secret things are brought to light and hidden defects in society are revealed. The inadequacy of the policies and programs of the nations is known. In all this, the need of a new national policy is suggested. And in the struggle of the nation today, we find the hope of a new social order. The nation will never be the same as it was before. A return to the status quo is impossible. Changes are coming. And we must prepare for them. What shall these changes be? Shall reaction regain its hold and control the power of industry and life of the nation? If so, there is trouble ahead with friction, strife, and rebellion. Shall we allow things to drift and trust that they will adjust themselves? We need to remember that moral progress 
is not automatic. Things grow better just as fast and as far as men see the better and strive for it. To allow things to drift is to invite disaster. There is only one course open, therefore. We must understand it. We must understand the changes that right and necessary. We must have an intelligent conception of the laws of social and national life. And we must unite the people in behalf of social justice and progress. It appears for one thing that we have been most neglectful and watchful, wasteful of our human resources. We have been intent on the project of developing the natural resources of the nation, and we have done this at an unparalleled rate. But in all this, we have been neglectful of higher values and have been wasteful of the most valuable asset the lies given to us. We have built our cities and developed our industries with little regard for the health, the happiness, and the welfare of the individual. It appears that the industrial processes have been regardless of the welfare of the people and the larger life of the nation. Each industry has been controlled by its own managers, usually a few men, whose immediate object was profit. It has worked for the spirit. It has worked the spirit and the hope out of men and has left life devoid of eternal values. It appears further that special privilege and industrial autocracy have exploited the people and have made a, made a malign influence upon the nation. The control of industry has fallen into hands, and these are able to determine the destiny of millions of men, and they have used this power to enrich themselves out of the necessities of the people. This evil became especially patent in early stages of the World War. During the past years, there's been a marked increase in the cost of living. When the war began, what did we find? Practically every group in the land used the war as a plea for raising the price of everything that they control. You didn't live back then, folks. Understand that what's happened here in the last two years was a way to replicate this without the destruction. And so we found individuals and corporations growing enormously rich out of the greatest calamity of the race. Mom-and-pop industries all around this, this, this nation, all around this city, are out of business. They couldn't make it. I hope you had stock in Amazon, because that went up billions of dollars in profits. They have allowed self-interest to determine their attitude and conduct. Thus, the individualistic doctrine, in its negative aspect at least, leads to the reign of capitalism in industry and of self-interest in trade. He goes on to say this, quote, society must abolish special privileges of whatever kind, social, political, or economic. It must break the stranglehold of capitalism upon labor, industry, and life. The people must regain the lost right to the earth, and its resources. Woe to those who oppose the coming of social justice and would keep the people down. The process of industry must come under the direct supervision and coordination of society. Understand what he's talking about here is what is known as stakeholder capitalism. 
The time was when the individual who wanted to stand on his feet and secure justice had to depend on his own strong arm. And we substitute the general, definite, impartial will for the uncertain, arbitrary, personal will. The time has come when men in their economic relations must agree to come under the control of society and to have their interests interpreted and measured by the common will and welfare. We must create a more just and efficient, let me say again, we must create a more just and efficient social order. Samuel Zane Batten ends with the following. Which course will people take? Some men will prefer one, and another men will choose the alternative. But one way or the other, society will take, and one way it must take. Now, if you're someone who is familiar with what has been stated by Klaus Schwab in his book, COVID-19 and the Great Reset, or in the declarations, let's say, made by Boris Johnson, Bill de Blasio, Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, Angela Merkel, you would be hearing a nearly identical message. I mean, actually, there are sentences lifted straight out of what the Baptist minister, Samuel Zane Batten, had declared. The same proclamations, actually, of H.G. Wells. And actually, you will hear the same proclamations made by Nebuchadnezzar. A new religion. A new cult a new way and order of society, a reset of the old order. But to make this move into the new order successful, you need complete buy-in by everyone. There can't be one single molecule out of the control of the new artificial God, a God who is a a lot better this time around, but you need complete buy-in to fully transition an entire world into a new fully religious system, the kind of system as envisioned by H.G. Wells, by Batten, by Nebuchadnezzar. Civilization must be transitioned really top-down, bottom-up, and inside-out. Many of you have heard me speak of that before. Top-down, legislatively, have the seats of power that are making the decisions at the top, bottom up with all your movements. Now, I want you to think about something. After the tragic and horrible death of George Floyd, which it was, you had movements, you had protests around the world that were organized. But I mean, quite honestly, they were, there were a few thousand people, a few hundred people, and mayhem was occurring. The police, if you remember, were told to stand down and to give way. Do you realize that over the last two months, the greatest, largest protests around the world in the history of mankind have been taking place? But you don't see it. Maybe you do if you look on Twitter, on the right accounts, when you see hundreds of thousands of people in Rome marching against the mandates, hundreds of thousands of people marching in Paris, hundreds of thousands of people marching in London, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people marching in Australia to find the lockdowns, hundreds of thousands of people actually marching in Peru. And if you saw what was happening in the Caribbean islands, I mean, they basically wiped it off the map and the Caribbean nations relented to the people. But you're not going to hear any of that. And I'll tell you this, here's the real sick part. Top down, bottom up, and we actually have the bottom up right now. The will of the people is, no, we're not doing this. 
and enough people are kind of understanding what I'm saying right now. Maybe not in specifics, but in generalities. But people get what's happening. They can feel it. Remember we were talking about the Roman Catholic Church? Let me tell you. What's so great about the Roman Catholic Church in terms of what they're trying to accomplish right now all over the world is this. It's top-down. It's hierarchical. You flip out a relatively conservative, well, pretty crazy conservative, Pope Benedict, who was trying to rot it, just root out all this stuff within the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, of course, I hate Catholic theology, but he was trying to get rid of all this stuff. You have massive debt from all of these accusations of pedophilia, all these actual accusations of sexual misconduct, all of these lawsuits that are being fil- just filed all over the world, huge amounts of debt piling up, which is insurmountable. And someone says, you know, we can make that go away if this guy comes in. Francis comes in, the balloons go up, every nation around the world is inviting him to come and spread his Marxist theology, the, Pope's, the Pontifex Maximus is what I call him. So you have this man coming in. So what you have is a top-down. So he says, we're going this direction. We're going to worship the earth. We're going to bring in social justice. This is the direction we're going to go. You can't do that in Reformed evangelicalism, can you? Because there is no pope. You can't do that in evangelicalism. You've got all sorts of folks that are Baptists and Presbyterians and Reformed and you know, generally evangelicals and charismatics and half-reformed kind of, kind of Hegelian, um, charismatic reform folks. So, what do you do? Well, if you can't have one pope, if you can't have one person over all of them saying, this is what you have to do, I'm going to sit down on the ladder and chair, I'm infallible now, you got to do this. What do you do? You form a coalition. That's what you do. And now you got the top down. And most of them were my clients at one point. I knew what they were doing. I knew what they were, what they were doing because I helped build the bridge for the money to go to them. I didn't get it for a little while. I kind of lost my way a bit. I admit it. I would say it's the spirit of God. I just I couldn't do it anymore. And when you have where that money's coming from, and you have men flying over to Malaysia or into Asia and speaking in conferences by men who are pouring millions of dollars into their bank accounts for them to pursue an agenda, which would end up being the role of religion, which is actually fully endorsed by the World Economic Forum, then you know what's going on. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. Andy told me I could say anything I want, so I'm going to say it. I'm really tired right now. I had about three hours of sleep last night. I'm sorry. I'm struggling through this. By the way, bless the dear saint who brought me coffee just before I got up. And may the Lord curse Josh Bice for drinking all of his coffee so quickly. <laughs> just kidding. I love him. But, uh, but really, folks, you have to understand this is not games that we're talking about. The body of Christ is being used as a prostitute right now. And I want to ask you a question. For you men here, 
few men that are married, if someone was coming up and molesting your bride and threatening to take away the future of your children, what would you do? Would you take action? Would you start to name those that are attacking your bride, your wife? Who are trying to molest her and trying to sell her out in the street? And giving you a different story about why they're doing it? Even if they were people that were your mentors for years. Man, you got to step up to me and be men. We have to win this fight. There is no lose. Josh Bice was one of the few men that believed me. I was running around everywhere. 2015, 2016, 2017. Maybe I said a little bit too much sometimes, which I'll share a little bit of that with you. And he told me I could. <laughs> Explaining to people, like when we were together in Dallas in 2018, the first meeting that would eventually result in the statement on social justice and the gospel. I said, guys, you got about two years. I don't think anybody really cared what I said. I said, you got two years to get this done. We didn't do it. We wrote a great statement. It's fantastic. It could be better, quite honestly, and we should improve it. But making a statement wasn't the thing. We need to clear the streets. We need to clear our churches. We need to clear our denominations. We need to clear the parachurch ministries of wolves who are devouring the sheep. Where you have Gnosticism being preached everywhere that somehow has clothed itself in a way that it looks as if it's orthodox. And a game is being played of words and so forth where almost you are being told that you're the one who's unorthodox. But at the same time that this is happening in the church, sorry to say this, and look, I wanted to say this straight out. Uh, you know that I work with James Lindsay. He's my partner. Okay, He is an atheist. But every religion is coming to us that's being affected by this now. I want to give you this challenge right now, Reformed Church. Do you know who came to us that said, that's it, we're done, we're going to clear them out? Mormon elders. And so we have an eight-month plan to get them all out of our church. Now, if you're going to let that polytheistic cult do this before you do it, shame on you. You've got the truth. And you act as if the truth is not valuable. You act as if somehow you're calling before men to, to look as if you're a reasonable man. And your callings to make sure that your ministry succeeds, your career succeeds, your books are sold, whatever the case may be, that that's important. No, no. Clearing this cult out of the body of Christ is what's important right now. with this cult, here's what they're calling you to do. And this is eventually going to happen. You see that this all happens much like you would see within nations that start to have unvetted immigration that comes into their, their nations in, let's say, Belgium, where Islam becomes, they're the 20% and they cry oppression, 30%, they start to get a little bit more. But by the time they get to 40%, now they're starting to point their finger at you and say, you have to change because there must be complete obedience to the new system. 
That's why they're doing this. It's a critical theory of immigration. I don't have time for that right now, but I've done an entire podcast on that. What's happening right now is a critical theory of immigration. So there must be complete obedience. And any of you who do not obey will be thrown into the fiery furnace. It's basically what they're saying. You will be excluded from the new society. You will have your ability to make ends meet for you and your family. It will be removed. Your health care, your possibility of having health care will be removed because you must obey. And you must be a faithful worshiper of the new religion, of the new algorithmic world. Let's go back to Daniel, okay? Chapter 3. Verse 8. Let's go back there. Just got a couple minutes here and we'll finish up. Sorry, I've gone a bit too long here. Chapter 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast in the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, if you do not dance to the sound of my music, a strange and foreign music, a subjective music, if you do not worship me by showing me obedience and sacrifice, I will destroy you. Nebuchadnezzar declares, I am your new God, and I have created your new religion, your new cult. And if you know what's good for you, you will obey Verse 16, this is how they answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to cast them into the fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound to the burning fiery furnace. You must understand, dear brothers and sisters, that there is nothing new under the sun. And what you also must realize, that sinful men, even men that call themselves Christians because of their, the leading of the sin that is within their hearts, they are being led with corruption that is in their minds and souls. And sadly, that giant image of gold, that artificial God made by man, has been allowed to be wheeled into your sanctuaries. You are told to have conferences around the image that they have set up. You are told that you must fellowship with those that are telling you to worship that image. It's placed at your altars. It's actually carved and shaped out by the technocrats. And it was polished 102 years ago by a Baptist. And this rough beast that is slouching towards your city to be born has been prepared before you were even born to be brought in and placed in control of your church, your family, your city, your state, your nation, and your world. And you are being told to obey. And men that you trusted, men that had calming voices and polished rhetoric were brought in. And they are the ones that brought in the rough beast of the new artificial God for the new artificial cult. And now, how did this manifest itself today? What is it called? It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. But it is no mere industrial revolution. And we will go into this a bit more tomorrow. But what you're looking at is the first world Marxist, communist, and fascist revolution. And we as well will see how Shadrach and Abednego ended up after being thrown into the fire. And we will continue on with the causes of things. I thank you for your patience tonight. I am exhausted. I look forward to a good night's rest. But let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, I do thank you that you've given us this evening. I pray that you'll let us consider these things. And as well, Father, I pray that each person here will take notes and follow up on some of the things that I said tonight. To not take what I said as truth, but may it be confirmed in what they find. Lord, I pray that everything that I say and everything that I refer to be understood as gospel truth. We must know the bad news so that we can receive your great news. We ask that you'll bless this conference in the coming days. In your most holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.